Hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel, and if it's your first time worshiping with us here, whether in person or online, just want to say a special welcome to you, and thank you so much for being with us on this Sunday morning. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing, um, and you chose to spend it with us, and we're very, very happy and very thankful uh, for that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us as we start the sermon, and then we will get into it, and we will hear what God has to say to us through his word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship with one another, to gather together as your people, and uh, to have you speak to us through the word that you've given to us. Um, God, you have uh, given us your your word in scripture. You've given us your revelation, uh, which ultimately points to your son, Jesus, God. And I pray that as we study it today, uh, that you would uh, speak to us clearly through it, give us wisdom uh, on what it looks like to uh, walk through this this important area of of our lives that we are going to be talking about today. Um, and, And so we ask for that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I don't know about, about you guys, but it has been really nice. This is like the, I don't know, we're, we're getting into summer here, right? I know that we can all feel it. And one of the most fun parts about that is getting to just see uh, all the green out there, right? And, and green is kind of like when we see green every, I think we experience this especially in Minnesota where we actually have seasons. You know, you talk to people from other parts of the country and, and I was talking to a guy recently actually and he was talking about how yeah, he'd, he'd been in L.A. before this. He'd moved up to the Twin Cities to take a job. And I was like, well, what's it been like moving from L.A. to, like, Minnesota? And he said he loved it because he loved the seasons. And I think that that's, we get to experience sort of the joy of seeing green come back again, right? We, get to, it, we don't take it for granted here because we know what it's like to live without green, right? To live with all white instead. And that's what makes it so special and fun uh, when we get to see all of that come back every spring into the summer. We're sort of reminded of the joy uh, of seeing everything sprout new and fresh. And, uh, you know, we see green as very, as very beautiful, I think, as representing that. And when we, we kind of think about it from that lens, I think it, it's, it helps us to understand a little bit the joy that Adam and Eve, the, the, the first humans that were created, felt as they were put in this beautiful, green, lush garden to be together at the start when God sort of had created everything and it was all good and, and we were living in the midst of that. And, and this is, this, so this paradise is sort of a, a, like a, you know, the, the green, the garden is supposed to represent the flowering of the, of the growth and the beauty of what God had created. And so Adam and Eve are living in this garden together, and what they have is this sort of, what, what we're told in Genesis 2 is that they're naked and unashamed with one another. They're, they're, they're come together w- with no barriers between one another. And the point that's being made there is not necessarily the fact that they you know, weren't wearing clothes or something, but that there are no barriers to their intimacy with one another. Right? Nothing is sort of hindering them coming together in, 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 in knowing one another and being known by the other. Right? That, that's what's going on here in this garden paradise, flowering, you know, bursting forth in green and, and beauty that, that, that Adam and Eve are living in is the sort of beauty uh, of their intimacy with one another as well. There's no, no barriers to that. And the garden is supposed to represent this sort of intimate space that they live together in intimacy. That, that's what's going on here. 
And so we have this sort of husband and wife team that are tasked with overseeing creation together and sort of being told to, to rule in God's image over the creation that he's put uh, them into and to do it in intimacy with one another, with a, with a healthy love for each other that sort of spills out of their relationship into the rest of the world that, 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 they're, that they've been put into, into rule over like God does. And so the key here is, is intimacy, of knowing and being known, where even sex is simply just kind of a tool or a means to finding that deeper intimacy with one another. It's, it's a part of finding that, one of, one of several tools perhaps that they may have had to, to, to have that intimacy with one another, a sort of symbol of their relationship, their oneness with one another. Now, what's interesting is that when the fall happens, when sin enters the world and it kind of breaks everything, intimacy is really the thing that we find that is broken between Adam and Eve. It's broken between them and God as well. So sort of intimacy and relationship, it's all shattered. And that's really important that their intimacy with God is broken. But when we really get into see what is going on with the two of them, we see that their intimacy with each other is broken. They realized that they were naked, right? Before being sort of naked, sort of having no barriers between them, being unashamed of that was a good thing. But something happens in the fall to where now they're realized, oh, I'm exposed to this other person. I'm vulnerable to them now. Um, They start to feel shame around each other and God. And that's really the thing that breaks their intimacy is, is this need to sort of cover themselves up. Right? And it's not just the fear of like the physical nakedness, I think, right? You know how like you're looking in the mirror and you're like, I need to lose a few pounds, right? It's not that. It's so much as it is this fear of being known truly and intimately with one another, of not trusting the other, right, with everything that you have to sort of be completely yourself and to trust the other with that in total vulnerability. That's what intimacy really is at the at the end of the day. That has sort of been taken, that's been broken now. This need is there now for them to sort of measure up to one another. Um, and, and there's this fear of failure, of messing up in a way that could maybe ruin the relationship, right? So that causes you to sort of keep yourself from being maybe fully, truly revealing every single part of yourself to the other because true intimacy is now difficult to find. There, there are now barriers to that. And, and also we find that they're sort of cursed to this, this conflict with one another. Um, we find that their desire is to sort of rule over each other, to sort of um, compete for dominance in their relationship. And it's sort, of, it's sort of supposed to show that no longer is this intimacy there. It's just sort of looking out for the, themselves more than the other. Like that's all comes to us with just in the first few pages of the whole Bible is, is a story of, of, of the them being put in the garden together, and then that intimacy, that, that being broken, being shattered, so that it is no longer easy. It's now contested. It's now a difficult thing to find that in the world. In fact, maybe even impossible. And kind of symbolically showing what's going on here as well, Adam and Eve are actually kicked out of the garden. They're, they're told to leave it, and God shuts them out of it. So this space now where they were together in total intimacy, they no longer have that with one another. And I think we're, we feel that sort of break in intimacy today. It's interesting when you really, you know, study it. I think even, even today, maybe more, more so than any other time in history, we have this sort of like epidemic of a fear of intimacy, right? 
Uh, a, a lot of times you find people in marriage are no, are no often, you know, are often no more than roommates who, who live together and who sleep together, but there's not a lot of other intimacy that's going on there. And things like hookup culture and porn have sort of entirely drained intimacy from relationships whatsoever, right? It kind of says we can have some, a lot, you know, the stuff we want from relationships without having to have any intimacy at all. It can be to- it's totally anonymous a lot of times. Right? And so sex gets reduced to this sort of means for pleasure, this sort of means to finding fulfillment, where it kind of becomes no different than other forms of sort of self-expression. That's really what it's all about. And, and increasingly, you find people sort of just adopting this mindset, like, yeah, intimacy is tough. I don't even care about it. I am just, you know, why not just have sex for one, right? Why not just think of it in that way? And, and, and we actually find that this is true. Like, actual sex, like, there's a lot of studies that have been done around this, is actually down among young people quite a bit. As, but all these other things are, are up, right? All these other things that are really um, getting some of the benefits of sex without any, any intimacy whatsoever, th- that is still at an all-time high. And so that's kind of the reality we live in. And we find ourselves firmly living in the midst of that broken intimacy that we find all the way back in the garden in our own time today. But when we kind of move out of our Bibles, out of the song, or sorry, out of the book of Genesis to the book of Song of Songs, we actually find what seems to be a picture of what we had in the Garden of Eden being played out again among two people, a man and a woman seeking each other in a garden, looking to be intimate, claiming each other as their own, and desiring and, and, and ultimately all coming very close and almost getting to the place where they are intimate with one another, where they can share this love together again as they so deeply desire, right? It's a, it's a fundamental desire that we find that we have as humans is to have that intimacy. We find these two people uh, getting that together. So when we open it up, here's an example. This, actually sh- this motif of, of the man and the woman in the Song of Songs, this book in the Bible that we'll be talking about here for the next few weeks, um, in a garden, we actually find it all over the place. And so here's an example in Song of Songs 7, 10 to 12. I am my lover, and he claims me as his own. Come, my love, let us go to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. So it seems like In the Song of Songs, there is the search for and hope to find intimacy, the intimacy of the garden again, hinting at its possibility, and probably more uh, more accurately, its, its redemption or its restoration, sort of restoring what was lost in the garden. And the question is how? How is this possible? And, and I think the answer as with so much else that we've been talking about here in the series that we've been finding ourselves in, this wisdom series that we've been doing for most of the spring, is through exactly that, is through wisdom. And so typically, the book of Song of Songs is thought of as a part of the wisdom literature. And Tim Mackey is a Bible scholar who, who says this, if the purpose of this, and he's talking about wisdom biblical literature here, if the purpose of this biblical literature is to educate us in how to think wisely and well about the many aspects of life and God's design, then it makes all the sense in the world why an entire book would be dedicated to celebrating the goodness of love. 
So what he's saying here is that it, it, it makes, why wouldn't we expect there to be a book about this fundamental part of, of, of human nature, of human society, of love and relationships? Why wouldn't we expect there to be some part of the Bible speaking to how to exercise that in wisdom and find some restoration in that as part of seeking it out in wisdom? And so what we'll be doing here for the next few weeks, it's a bit of a long intro but to, to what we're doing, but what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks is, is going through this wisdom literature that we find in the Song of Songs, specifically on the topic of love and relationships, because it is a fundamental part of human society. And the whole idea for, for this series, as we've been talking about, if you remember all the way back to that first sermon we did in the book of Proverbs, is... is um, we, we need wisdom because information, which have, we have an information overload in the society we live in, right? But information isn't wisdom. Wisdom tells us what to do with information, right? And our feelings are good and should be celebrated and we should care about our feelings and others, but feelings don't always make the best guides in life, right? Which is why we have this, this, this theme of wisdom which shows up to us in Scripture to tell us sort of how to think, how to move, how to walk forward using this thing that God has gifted us called wisdom. And the Bible, it, it gives us wisdom, and there are different voices that kind of speak to different angles of it, which was why we've kind of put these different books of, of, of uh, biblical wisdom up against each other, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and now Song of Songs, because they all speak from different vantage points into different um, areas of, of the bigger idea of wisdom. And so we thought, you know, we have to just dig into this, uh, you know, as a church, right? Especially as we find ourselves living in the wake uh, of, of the, the break in intimacy that happens because of the introduction of sin and, and the fall into the world that we find ourselves living in and the sort of confusion around it. And the Bible doesn't want to leave us in there. So we don't want to, to leave ourselves uh, from not having the opportunity to dig into that as well. So we're excited to walk through the book of Song of Songs here uh, for the next few weeks. Now, the, the Song of Songs, the way we get the wisdom from it is actually through reading a collection of, of love poems that are told, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of in dialogue between several different characters. And, and people aren't always 100% sure, like, is this one uh, narrative that runs through the whole book, or is it, you know, sort of several poems that are kind of thrown in there together without any necessary structure to them? And it's probably the second one. It's probably kind of one-off poems, but we find themes that emerge in them. Okay, and so what we're going to do is we're going to be kind of unpacking uh, some of these themes. But I wanted to, so we're going to talk about one of those themes today, but first I want to just talk a little bit about um, who the characters in this book are, because I think that's helpful for us too, as well as we understand this. So, so the opening verses of the book of Song of Songs actually introduce us to all of the important characters in the book. Okay, first of all, let, let me just read this. This, this is from verses 2 to 4, um, and we learn about a couple of the characters here. This is the young woman speaking here. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. So in this first uh, poem in the book of Song of Songs, we find the young woman, we'll talk about her in just a second, but she's speaking about her lover, the young man. 
Okay, we'll talk about him first. We actually don't know as much about him. He speaks a lot less, and he doesn't initiate as much, actually, in the book of Song of Songs, as much as, as the woman. Now, we, we're not entirely sure at the identity of this character. A lot of times, it's identified with Solomon. It could be that. You see she refers to him as a king here, but there are other times where it seems like uh, this, this man is a shepherd, uh, which has led some scholars actually to guess there's like a love triangle going on in the book, but that's probably not I- exactly what's going on here. So uh, either way, it, it's a young man, um, and w- what we know about him is he is strongly desired, not just by the young woman, but also by other women. He's kind of an eligible bachelor. Lots of women see him as desirable. She says that his, his name goes before him like the spreading of fragrance of scented oils, right? His name is pleasing to many people. He's well-respected, um, and and, and, and people know who he is, and he's very uh, desired among many people in the city. Now, let's move forward. Let's, let's int- meet a few other characters. So now we move into a dialogue. This is verses uh, 4 to 5 here again between the young women of Jerusalem and then the young woman herself. So the young women of Jerusalem say, How happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. And the young woman responds, How right they are to adore you. I am dark but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. So first of all, the young women of Jerusalem, these are women who are friends of the young woman, the main, the main character, the young woman, um, and they're kind of young, they're kind of naive in the matters of love, and they kind of experience it vicariously through the young woman. So she talks to them and gives them counsel on wisdom, and they sort of experience love through her giving them wisdom, through di- some dialogues that take place between uh, them and her. So you can think of it like a rom-com, and they're the friends of the lead, right? They don't know a lot about love, and the leading lady, she kind of fills them in through her experience that she's going through, and everybody learns a lot through it, right? And, and here's something else that's interesting about them as well, and it's kind of set in contrast to the young woman. They are city girls. They're kind of fair-skinned, and they live in the city, and so all the connotations you can you know, think of when you think of city girls, right? that's what they kind of want you to, 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 to have here, um, and they, who live in the capital uh, city of Jerusalem. Now, all that's in contrast. It's important to understand that because that's in contrast to the young woman herself. So let's move to her now. Like I said, she actually has the most depth of any character in the book. And she is the primary speaker, really, of the book. She actually speaks 53% of the time in the whole book. And remember, there's several characters that speak. The man actually only speaks about 39%. So she's the primary speaker. She really is kind of uh, constantly taking the initiative in the relationship as well. She's the one who is, is consistently pursuing the man, kind of, kind of looking to, to set a place for their love and intimacy to take place. Now, she is always associated with country settings, vineyards, orchards, nut groves, okay, not the city. She is from a rural setting, and that's what she's talking about here in, when she talks about how she's uh, uh, dark but beautiful. So we'll get into that here in just a second, but she, be, being a rural person, she doesn't come from like a big family. Like We're supposed to get that sense. Her family is not a, a great, a great you know, well-known family, and she views herself very modestly. And the fact that she's darkened by the sun, that's what is, is being talked about here, means that she's tan from being out in the fields and working. 
Okay, so that's what's referring to. That's how we know that she is kind of a, from the working class and her family's from the working class because she can't just hang out inside all day and have fair skin. She has to be out working. So she's tan. And, you know, in our culture, being tan is sort of seen as like, you know, uh, you know we associate that with good-looking people. Like they're, they're tanning all the time and stuff. It's actually the opposite in the ancient world, okay? Having a, a deep tan would show that you weren't able to uh, avoid having to be working in the field all day. So being really tan was actually not necessarily a good thing in that time. So here's, a, here's who she is, right? Here's a good, a good parallel. Think of Kate Middleton, right? Coming from the countryside, not from a big family, but coming into the city and being wooed by a very eligible person who may in fact be the king, all right? That's who she is, right? She becomes the desired prize of this most eligible bachelor. And, and here's, here's, here's what she is. She's, she's really has a lot of wisdom and a lot of depth, and she's also very playful and flirty, but not in a shallow way. She's actually very confident and wise and mature, and she knows what she wants, and she's willing to go and get that, okay? So she's really, uh, uh, I think, a good model for us to all learn from. And the man, despite the fact that she views herself modestly, despite the fact that she is known as sort of a part of the rural class, um, he, sp- he calls her beautiful constantly. He calls her the most beautiful woman. He-, he talks about things about her that he finds attractive. And he actually has some very, very culturally dependent descriptions of her beauty, okay? So um, he says that her teeth at one point look like a flock of sheeps. He says her neck and her nose look like a tower. Um, Her hair looks like a flock of goats coming down a mountain, right? Uh, If nothing else, you got to give him an A for effort. I got to think he spent a lot of time coming up with those. And probably in his time, those were very, uh, very good descriptions of a woman's beauty. But I would just caution all the men in the room here, maybe don't describe, uh, describe a woman that way. I don't think it would translate to our time and place today, okay? Can I get a, you know, women, do you agree with that? Would you prefer to not have your, sheet or your teeth compared to goats, I'm guessing? Okay, good. Just confirming, if, if you're watching on the stream, just know all the women shook their head yes, okay? Now, the man and the woman, the, together they have this sort of interplay as they both seek intimacy with one another. And it's kind of teasing, it's kind of flirty. There's a lot of excitement to it. And there's no sort of power dynamic. They're totally equals, Now, the woman continues talking here in verse 6, and we learn a little bit more about her situation and her family in particular. So she says, don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin. Now, this just speaks to what I said about her sort of, her modesty, seeing her tan skin as making her less desirable in some way because it gives her a way of being of low means, of working class. But here she talks about her brothers. My brothers were angry with me, and they forced me to care for their vineyards, so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. Now what she's saying is her brothers, the reason she's had to work in the field so much is that her brothers have made her do it, and has actually kind of stopped her from being able to go out and actually sort of try to meet guys and try to seek out love as much as she would like. And this introduces us to her brothers and her family. Now, what the role that they play in the book, and they don't show up a ton, it's just a couple of times, but in that time period, brothers would, would sometimes play the role of managing the sexual purity of, of their sisters. They would kind of be involved in negotiations over marriages and different things. If you saw the show Bridgerton, 
Okay, think something like that. That, that actually stayed in culture for a long time, uh, not just in this ancient time, but continued up into the modern West even. Now, it's obviously gone now, but um, it, it, it took a while to really die off that that happened. And them sort of managing her kind of have, have kept her from getting to go meet guys. And so she kind of resents them a little bit. She's not pleased with them. And I think the, what we're supposed to read of the brothers here is they sort of represent this sort of control of sexuality, this sort of, sort of control of, of, of other people's love lives and societal norms, right? I think that's what we're supposed to read here. And it's just interesting to note, okay? I think I just want to put this out there and say you can go too far in applying this point, okay? But it's interesting to note that the woman resists them often, right? She's, because she's desiring intimacy and she feels like she's being sort of blocked off from getting there. Now, the introduction of these brothers is the first place we realize that not everything is coming together perfectly for the man and the woman as they're seeking this intimacy out with one another. Okay, they're pursuing each other, but we find that the poems get them often right to the point where they're going to get to be intimate and they're not quite able to get there. All right, it just stops before we find out what happens. Right? And they are always on guard about these things, and these, we'll talk about these in the series, things that sort of ruin or, or stop them from getting to a place of intimacy. We're told about these little foxes who run around, who ruin their vineyard, right? Mess with their intimacy, these sort of critters that come in and mess with everything. And we have to try to keep the foxes from coming in and messing with stuff. The city itself, actually, sort of all the distractions and, and everything that comes with, with the big city is sort of a place that causes their intimacy to not be able to take place as well. And so it's often a place where union is really difficult or maybe even impossible. And then there's also the problem, and, and the young woman speaks about this several times, of awakening love too early, okay? Awakening love before it's time, because that will cause true intimacy to not be able to take place. And what we find constantly in the book of Song of Songs is that love is treated with the utmost respect. It is not a casual thing whatsoever to these people. It is given the utmost respect. And in chapter 8, we find the reason why. And we find there a comparison between love and fire. So let me read that to you. Uh, Song of Songs 8, verses 6 and 7. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. So think about this a little bit, right? This, uh, this association between love and fire. There's a lot to it when you really consider it, right? Maybe, maybe when you think about that, you think of your experience with being harmed, right, in a, in a relationship in some way, right? Playing with, playing with something that was misused by somebody or maybe you misused in some way and you found yourself getting burned by it, right? Maybe it makes you think of, uh, you know, the Me Too movement, which is something that, cro- that cropped up as a response to, you know, the realization that, that there has been, you know, lots of examples in human history where people have sort of misused love and sex. They've sort of uh, used it as a, in a way to hurt other people because fire has the ability to hurt other people when it's not used properly, okay? Fire is not casual, and love is not supposed to be casual either, okay? And that is a huge, I think, thing that we take away from the book of Song of Songs. And with fire, 
like wise use of form for how to use it, a pattern that you learn from somebody else is really important to help you to use it in the right way. Okay, a mindset of sort of just do whatever you want, right? You can play with fire however you want to is probably a recipe for success. It's going to be one of two things happen if that's your approach. One, you'll burn yourself or you'll burn somebody else. Or two, you won't be able to get a sparklet, right? If you don't know how to do anything with fire, you're not going to get that sparklet. And then, again, no intimacy is going to really take place, right? That, that's kind of the, how the fire analogy, I think, works. But when you handle fire correctly... It allows you to get the life-giving power of fire as well. Because fire is something we can't live without as humans, right? It's, we know that especially living in Minnesota, like how important it is to have fire, something to warm us in the winter. It literally keeps us alive in those cold periods uh, of, uh, of, 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 of the season, right? And we need fire to help us to see at night when it's dark, right? Fire has this sort of integral um, part of, of human society and love and relationships and intimacy are the same. Okay, like fire, society can't function without the presence of loving relationships. Okay, but it's only going to really benefit us if we can uh, handle it correctly, if we know what we're doing with it, if we have wisdom in how we do it. And the big idea of Song of Songs and in Scripture, when it comes to love, is that we need to treat love and relationships with this sort of uh, wisdom and caution uh, that comes with seeing it like fire. Because when we do, we will really see it benefit us in the way that it does for Adam and Eve as they find that intimacy in the garden itself. Now, what I want to do is I want to stop there. We'll continue to unpack this um, as we go on through the rest of this series for three more weeks. But I don't, want to, I don't want to end the sermon quite yet. I do want to talk about one other thing that I think it's really important to bring up whenever we approach. I think whenever we as Christians approach the subject of love and relationships and intimacy, we have to talk about this as well. And I think we've struggled to do this as a church. And I think in society, we really struggle to talk about this as well. And here's the question that maybe some of you are asking as you hear this. If the Bible finds wise love, relationships, and intimacy so fundamental to being fully human, then you might ask yourself this. Do I need to be in love to be fully human or living wisely? Right? I think that's a takeaway that some people might have from the stuff I've said that I don't think is actually correct. All right? People might be hearing this and might be asking, well, what about me? right? I think there's a, there's a mindset, and maybe you've experienced this at times in your life, that if you're single, you're not as Christian as everybody else, or you're not experiencing fullness or flourishing in the same way that those other married Christians over there are feeling. And maybe you feel some pressure to, like, get married, right, to kind of join in with everybody else. I know it's a pressure a lot of Christians feel, and I think um, outside of the church, that's also true as well. Right? There's a sort of a view that if, if you're not having sex, if you're not sort of uh, expressing yourself in that way, you're not a fulfilled human. Right? I, I, this is kind of an older movie at this point, but in the early 2000s, the movie uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin came out. You guys remember this, this movie with S Steve Carell? And the whole point of the movie is that this guy's 40 years old, he's still a virgin, and he's super awkward, he's super weird, and his friends are like, whoa, you've never had sex? Like, we better get you laid because then you're going to to like 
be a normal person now. Like, that's kind of the whole point of the movie, right? And I think that that's the view outside of the church as well. So either way, wherever we're at, we're hearing that a lot of times that, like, being in love, being in a relationship, that's sort of what, what it means to be fully human. And I, I, the answer to the question that I have posed, do we need to be in love to be living wisely or fully human? It's no, okay? I want to say that really specifically and really clearly to you all here, okay? There's several reasons for this, and I want to kind of talk through these as we move here forward through the rest of the sermon. First off, who's the most important person in the whole Bible? Someone, someone yell it out. Yeah, okay, Jesus. How many, you know, romantic relationships do we read about that he was in? He was in zero romantic relationships, okay? This guy was, he did not ever get married. He did not have any romantic relationships. And yet, a huge part of the, who Jesus is and why he's important is that he was fully and truly human, right? When we hear that Jesus is the perfect image of God and we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that's actually speaking to us being in the image of God and us being kind of you know, reform back into that full expression of what it means to be human, right? In the image of God that has been put on all humans in the garden. And Jesus is doing this as a single person, okay? So take that and really just consider the fact that, like, that, 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 that you can be fully human without being in relationships, all right? Second of all, the, arguably the second most important person in at least delivering to us the Bible that we have today is a guy named the Apostle Paul, Right? He wrote a good chunk of the letters in the New Testament, and his sort of thinking in those letters has been foundational for how the church has seen itself ever since then. This guy was also single, okay? Just, just think about that. And he gives his rationale in 1 Corinthians 7 that he feels like, I'm actually going to be better at doing my work as an apostle of preaching the kingdom of God if I do so unmarried. Okay, so if anything, he's saying it's actually in, in better in some ways to not be married, to, to not have the obligations that come with being in a relationship. If you are going to take this relationship as seriously as the Song of Songs wants you to take it, Paul is saying for some people, it might be better for them to actually not have that obligation so they can commit themselves fully to the work of the kingdom. That's his rationale in 1 Corinthians 7. And he actually calls singleness a gift. Okay? It, it's a good thing that God gives to be used in a certain way. And that leads us to, this, to the third reason I think we should answer no to that question, is that there have always been spaces in the church that give sort of essential dignity and worth to people who choose to, uh, choose to be single and celibate. Okay? That, is, there, that has always existed in the history of the church, to give dignity and value to people who choose that vocation. Right? And we've completely, I think, lost sight of that in a lot of ways uh, and celebrating that when that happens. Okay? It's worth pointing out here, I think, at this point, that the Song of Songs has actually not always been read, uh, literally, like we're going to be applying it here in the series. For, for a lot of people in church history, it was actually read allegorically. And as an allegory, specifically, bet- about God and his people, and the intimacy that comes uh, between those, those, those two groups, right? Between the people of God and God himself. And we actually find in different places in Scripture where the relationship between God and his church is described in a marriage. Ephesians 5 is the most famous place where we see that, where, where Paul, the Apostle Paul says that marriage is supposed to mirror God's relationship with his church. 
and that they're supposed to have this sort of loving pursuit of one another, this, this, uh, this intimacy with one another as well. The intimacy that God desires for us to have is not just between um, our romantic partners, but also with him. All right? And, 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 and the reason I think that the church, uh, you know, read this, this allegorically a lot of times, or at least the impulse pressing on them, was because there was a desire in the church, and I think that it got too strong at times, but there was a desire in the church to keep the fire of love from raging, you know, too strong, right? For, to keep forest fires from breaking out and to not let people be mastered by it. And then also is to show that being fully human ultimately means intimacy with God, okay? Ultimately means setting ourselves apart to have a deep and loving intimacy with God, now, there's good reasons that the church moved away from reading Song of Songs purely allegorically, but I think we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we should try to understand the wisdom that we've received from the church in older uh, times in their approach and desire to read the Song of Songs uh, that way. Because it demonstrates this impulse has been there from the beginning and should still be with us today, that to be fully human is to be in love and to be uh, uh, you know, in, in relationships in some way. And I think it's our duty to honor that impulse even as we read the Song of Songs differently. I just want to draw to our attention today a couple of examples of this in the modern day here, okay? So this is a guy named David Bennett. Um, he is a, um, a, a doctor of philosophy candidate at Oxford. And he is, he's gay, but he's chosen to follow this historic Christian sex ethic um, uh, that marriage is reserved for in, the cov- in this covenant between a man and a woman. And he's been doing this thesis work as part of his doctor of philosophy where he studies these holy virgins who, who existed, or he specifically he's studying, I believe, in the 4th and 5th century, who, um, who, who had set themselves apart to live an aesthetic life, to choose celibacy, which they were often martyred for, often, you know, and in, in really bad times, they would find themselves uh, raped, actually. But they're, they're choosing celibacy as a form of resistance against the Greco-Roman pagan views of women, that they were just there to, to bear children and have sex, right? That, that was the view that a lot of times women had in the ancient world, and so they chose to resist that by, being, uh, by committing themselves to celibacy and singleness, to be a holy virgin. And his, his thesis in, 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 in what he's working on is to argue that um, for him, this modern gay celibacy movement functions similarly by challenging what he calls the modern view of sex and relationships. Um, and he uses a Greek word called eudaimonia, which means happiness or welfare, which says that all that matters is, is that we go find happiness in the form of love and relationships. And for him, it's important to push back upon that, to say that all it means to be human is to be happy and fulfilled and, and you know, living that out in, in whatever way possible. And, and his goal is to try to you know, study that and to say, like, that's not true. <laughs> that, that's not necessarily always true, that um, we should be constantly seeking happiness and see love and relationships in that way. All right, and another example, um, this is something I came across actually just this week, is a place in Nashville called the Family of Brothers Monastery. And it's similar. It's a group of men. I think some of them are gay, some of them are straight, um, but they're living the church's historical sex ethic ethic together celibately. And essentially what it is, is it's a monastery, right? Now, a monastery is this place where a group of people come together who are committed to... um, 
to, to have intimate relationships with one another, but to do so in the form of friendship and to pursue, pursue God together. Now, historically, monasteries have been the place where the most social justice and a lot of the theology of the church has come from, as people have committed themselves to this, by desiring their intimacy with God together through friendship and then seeking God together deeply. And what it, this does is it reminds everybody that we don't need to be in love to find intimacy. Okay, I think that we so often forget this. Right? We so often forget the importance of friendship when it comes to intimacy. And Peter Volk, who is a founder of this uh, uh, family of Brothers Monastery, he, he says, listen, I know that when I die, even though I, I, I don't plan to be married at any point, I will still have people with me around my deathbed. And I look forward to that and I celebrate that. And he finds that in this sort of community of friends, this community who care about intimacy. Now, for us at Res City, this sort of intimacy with other people who are not just someone we're in a relationship with, a romantic relationship with, are incredibly important. And that's the whole reason we have community groups, right? That's the whole reason we're trying to have you share life with other people, to go deep in intimacies, because intimacy can be found in, in, in all sorts of relationships with humans. And we need to seek all of those out, not just intimacy in romantic relationships. And, and so we need to sort of celebrate the vocation of other people doing this so that we can remind ourselves of the importance of that. Because at the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when we go back to the garden, we talk about what we're created for as humans, what we're created for is intimacy with God himself. That is the fundamental intimacy that we should be seeking as Christians. And as St. Augustine, um, an African bishop from the 3rd and 4th century, as he says, as someone who himself lived celibately as a priest, is that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts is restless until it rests in you. Our foundational source of intimacy must be founded on intimacy with God because ultimately that's what we're ultimately formed for, okay? That's ultimately what we are supposed to be as humans. And no amount of real, deep, you know, real intimacy in a, from a lover or a friend will ultimately fill that hole that exists within us, okay? So we need to seek that out fully. And so that's kind of where I, I want to leave, leave us today in this, in this sermon is, is, is with the reminder that as, as we talk about what it looks like to seek out intimacy in loving relationships in this sermon series, I don't want you to think uh, that that is the only place to find intimacy. In fact, I want to encourage you to seek out intimacy in all sorts of other relationships and especially with God, even as we learn more about what it looks like to have intimacy in love and relationships. So let me, let me pray for us here and we'll move into uh, a time of communion and response and worship. Lord, we thank you that you give us wisdom in your word to help us to know what it looks like to seek out uh, the good of love and relationships, of intimacy, God, the thing that you have given to human society to help it to grow and to flourish, Lord. Whatever form it takes among each and every one of us, God, help us to have wisdom to know how to take the fire of love and relationships and to use it wisely, God. Help us to, to know what that looks like as we study your word more over these next few weeks. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.